Morning. Morning. Uh, before I read the sermon text, I just want to do a little plug for uh, this month's Christian culture, because Andrew just handed me a whole stack of them. If you haven't read this, it's really, really good reading. The guy that wrote this article wrote a book on this subject, the best book I've read on the subject. So I've got a bunch of those if you didn't get one. So. Oh, it's upside down. Just now. Sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Amen. Preach it, Reverend Sam. I will. You may be seated. I uh, This passage is very um, full. I um, decided yesterday, by the way, have your Bibles open there to Romans chapter 12. I had decided yesterday to um, divide the treatment of this passage into um, two messages. Um, It's so packed that I would have to race through the exposition here were I to... um, try to fit it all in today. So um, I'm going to do, uh, like Tom Malone used to say, sort of the freight train message. We just sort of unhook the message uh, about halfway through, and we'll finish finish next week. Uh, Paul, in this passage, remember, just before, has been articulating how to live on the basis of this gospel worldview. He set that worldview out in chapters 1 through 11. We're to offer our lives a living sacrifice, he says in the first few verses of chapter 12. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by our minds renewing. The next, in in verses 3 through 8 that were just read, 3 through 9 and 9 through 21 and so on, he lays out uh, the gospel worldview, how it operates practically in the church. So then Paul here in these verses is getting down to very uh, simple ethical exhortations, very practical ways in which we are supposed to live. One thing strikes us immediately, and uh, this struck me immediately when I was studying it in the last week or so. I am struck by the profound simplicity of these statements. Did you notice that as they were being read? Did you notice that in these verses? Be kindly affection, not lagging in diligence, rejoice in hope, be steadfast in prayer. You'd think that Paul, after this glorious exposition about technical things like justification 
and the implications of baptism in chapter 6 and all that stuff, you'd think that when he got to the very practical part, that he would have a sort of a, a complex way that we are supposed to live and serve God on the basis of this. But frankly, that's not true. It's remarkable how simple it is. Now, I want to suggest to you that there is a great danger of, um, of overcomplicating uh, God's ethical standards, what God requires of us. And I want to issue a little warning. A lot of us have the tendency to overcomplicate because if we overcomplicate, we can have an excuse for sort of living any way we want to live. Well, it's just, you know, it's just not quite clear on, I don't quite understand what God wants there. and Therefore, I can basically do what I want to do. No. As a matter of fact, did you know that essentially the Bible is very clear on what it requires of us? I've told you this before, and I will repeat this because it's something that we need to know and something we need to instill in our children. You have heard of the old hymn, Trust and Obey. Essentially, the Christian faith is about faith and obedience, faith and obedience, faith and obedience. You get up every day, you put your trust in the sovereign God and the true, his word and in his son, Jesus Christ, who takes away our sins and who is alive for us today. And you say, God, on the basis of your word, how do I live my life? My friends, you can live 90 years and that will be enough. It doesn't have to be overly complicated. You don't have to figure anything out much more than that. You don't have to be a scholar. All you have to do is trust God and obey his word. That's what you have to do. It's true that the Bible is not always easy to understand. Peter said that, by the way, about some of Paul's writings. He said, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. No doubt. That's certainly true, Peter. But trust me on this, the basic ethics of the Bible are easy to understand. No question about it. You see, the ethics of the Bible and what he requires of us are not hard to understand. They're just hard to do sometimes. Like this list here that we'll go through a little more fully next week. Um, given to hospitality, blessing those that persecute you. That's not hard to understand. That's hard to do. Uh, verse 16. Uh, being of the same mind one to, uh, toward another. Uh, don't repay, verse 17, evil for evil. Uh, that's not hard to understand. That's hard to do. Notice verse 19, don't avenge yourselves. That's not hard to understand. That's hard to do. So understand that the Christian faith and the ethics are not difficult to understand. They're often difficult to obey. That's the point. God's word is a word of the sovereign, and we are his subjects. Um, I'm not sure how often many Christians today quite understand that fact. God is the sovereign, and we are his subjects. God, through his son Jesus Christ, is our king, and we're called to surrender to and obey his word. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to address briefly the, uh, the sort of bookends, the bookends of uh, this segment that was just read. I want you to notice, please, first of all, in, uh, in verse uh, 9, let love be without uh, dissimulation, some of your translations will say, or hypocrisy. We'll get to that next week. But notice that more general exhortation after that, abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good. And then I would draw your attention to the other bookend at the other edge before we get into the discussion of 
civil government. Notice verse 21. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, notice that expression, first of all, in verse 9, abhor what is evil. This has been deeply convicting to me. The word translated abhor there means to look on with horror. Uh, Have you ever seen things uh, in your life, things that have happened to other people? You've heard stories, uh, perhaps today in our technologically advanced generation and the visualization that we have. You've seen perhaps on movies or visual images of things that are, are horrifying, whether they be in horror movies or things you actually see. And you're basically, you're just kind of like you see that and you're like shaken and you say, I, I want to get this out of my mind. This is a terribly horrifying thing. It just frightens me. That precisely is what's being spoken of in Romans chapter 12 when Paul says, abhor that which is evil. I wonder if um, oftentimes we have lost the, uh, the sense of the horror, the horror of sin, and therefore we don't abhor it. We don't abhor it because we don't know how bad it really is. Um, an email came to me about, um, I guess it was two weeks ago now, uh, about uh, the current state of a church that I've preached in so many times that uh, I can't remember. I was um, the minister of uh, Church of the Word. Isn't that odd? That's the name of our church in Ohio. This is Church of the King. I moved from Church of the Word to Church of the King, right? In Ohio uh, for a number of years. This congregation, this other congregation was across town, and uh, I'd gotten to know the ministers there. There were two of them. Uh, very good men as far as I could tell, had a good vision and so on. They had heard about my preaching and listened to me and said, would you come over to our church and preach? Their church was sort of started after ours. So what I would often do is I would preach at Church of the Word and then quickly get in my car and zip over there, and they would, of course, be in their music just right before preaching, and then I would preach. I don't know how many times I've done that, worked with them and so on. Well, after I moved to California, I had some disturbing news. A couple of the individuals, faithful members of that congregation, told me that one of the pastors of there had uh, been, uh, at best, in a very sinful relationship with one of the wives of the members and possibly was committing adultery with her. And, of course, I thought that was just an accusation, and, of course, I wasn't ready to believe it. Uh, They were both very reliable men. One of them was the the husband, and he says, I know that... uh, this is happening, and uh, I'm going to prove it. Well, he um, set up various taping devices in his house, um, being the uh, jealous man that he was. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that kind of godly jealousy. Very jealous man, with full of godly jealousy. And he also hired a private investigator with um, videotaping equipment to, uh, to follow them. About a month and a half later, I was at home. I'll never forget that it was a very hot day in the summer up in Lake Don Pedro. I got a, uh, I got a package in the mail. And in the package were several cassette tapes. We don't even use much cassette tapes anymore. And one, not DVD, but a VHS. Um, <clears throat> I took the, um, I didn't even have a cassette player. Um, those are almost gone now, obsolete. But I had a cassette player in my head of van at the time. 
Uh, there was one in the van. I took it out. I'll never forget. It was late at night. Um, I took and put the tapes in, and I listened to conversations between this pastor of this church and the woman that uh, this wife of the friend of mine, and I was just, it was so, it was so appalling, I wanted to open the van door and just vomit outside the left of the car. I went inside and put the VHS in and saw their um, embraces and so on. This man, a very, by all accounts, a happily married man, and this woman also. Um, <clears throat> things were set in motion that caused him, thank God, to, uh, to resign from that church. Uh, he was one of, there were co-pastors in this church. This church was a church of, I mean, by ref, it was a reformed church. By reformed standards, it was a large church, had about 200 people. Great, thriving congregation. Well, a couple of months later, the, uh, after this first pastor resigned, the second pastor um, admitted that in the last year or two, he too had had an adulterous relationship with a younger woman. I got my note about, this was like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Today, the church, I got the note, um, just doesn't even meet on Sundays. They meet once a month. And um, had a beautiful building, gorgeous building on a number of acres. Building's been sold and all of that. Uh, let me tell you why we abhor evil because sin destroys and damns and corrupts everything good. And it will do that in your individual life, and it will do that in your family, and it will do that in the church, and it will do that in society. We ought to have a horror towards sin, because sin damns and sin destroys. Young people, I want you to listen very carefully to me. If you play around with sin, sinful thoughts, sinful words, uh, sinful actions... Eventually, you're going to get caught. It doesn't matter whether man catches you. Understand that God has rigged this universe. God has rigged the universe so you can't get away with sin. <laughs> he has rigged you in the psychology of your being, in your psyche, so that you can't get away with sin. You can't. It's an impossibility. It's like someone who says, I don't like this law of gravity. I resist this law. Why should this law be what it is? I don't think it's real. I'm going to stand on a 20-story building and resist this law. You resist that law by stepping out, and guess what? You're going to be like a splat on the ground. You can resist it and say you resist it all you want, but God has established certain laws, and if you don't live according to those laws, you'll suffer terribly. If we abhor sin, how do we deal with it? I think of Joseph in the Old Testament, the son of Jacob, who was down in Egypt and was being uh, seduced by the wife of his master. He basically was the leading servant in the house, and Potiphar's right-hand man, and was day after day Potiphar's wife attended to seduce this young man. Eventually, the Bible says she grabbed, she really wanted to seduce him. She grabbed his coat, and you know what the Bible says? The Bible says he ran. Um, notice that the Bible doesn't say that he stood around and rationalized. Or that he stood around and preached her a little sermon. The Bible says that he ran. Young men and young ladies, and I'm not speaking only of this sin, I'm speaking of all sins. The Bible says the best way to deal with them is resist the devil, resist and stay away. Think about Mother Eve, for example. Now, if God told you that of all the trees that you could eat, 
There's only one in this glorious garden of all of this luscious fruit. There's only one of those trees that you shouldn't eat of. If God told you that, what would you do? Would you be just kind of hanging around over by that tree? Man, look at this. This is. I wonder why God said this tree. This is a very interesting tree. Let's take a scientific... Maybe there's something different about this tree. Maybe this is a poisonous tree. Let's take some... You wouldn't do that, would you? And yet as believers, how often we do that. And the reason that people fall into sin many times is precisely for that reason. Do you understand that about sin? That sin is very destructive because you get around it. Most people don't plan to sin. Sin is only 10% intent and 90% opportunity. You know what I mean by that. 10% intent and 90% opportunity. Which is to say, if you stay away from the opportunity, you, if you don't give yourself a good opportunity to sin, then you probably will not. Yes, Reverend Sandlin, that is good preaching. Abhor that which is evil. Scripture is clear on that. The Bible says also in that, in that statement, please, in verse 9, it says cling to what is good. Do some of your uh, translations say cleave? Do you have any other words translated for cling or cleave? What do your translations say? Hold, grasp, something like that. It's very interesting that the word, that word translated there, cling or cleave, it is so remarkable. Would you like to know in the Greek that essentially the word is glue? That's the word. It's glue. It's adhesive. That's what it says. It says you take the adhesive and you grab on to that which is good and you don't let go. Uh, We could use today, both in this congregation and more widely, a a passion, a passion for holiness. Um, Understand the difference here. I'm not simply saying that there is a particular ethical standard. And that we say, well, yes, we know right and wrong. And we're going to avoid that which is wrong. And yes, we need to do what is right. That's not the language. That's not what Paul is saying there. Paul's saying that we need to be cling to as glue would cling. Take two pieces of metal or two pieces of wood and put them together. We need to be passionate about doing what is good. It ought to be a driving passion of our life. I'm uh, thinking of the story of... um, I was thinking about this last night of Phineas in Numbers chapter 25. Do any of you remember the story in the Old Testament of Phineas in Numbers chapter 25? It's a remarkable story. The children of Israel were in the wilderness. They came to a place called Shittim. It was a very pagan area. And a number of the surrounding pagans uh, influenced the, the Jews at the time, particularly influenced the men. And the women there tended to seduce, I'm sure with the help of the pagan men, seduce these men not just into perver- not just uh, sexual practices, but also in all of their sort of pagan worship festivals and so on. And Moses then commanded, he was just so angry, Moses commanded that the leaders of Israel, the judges, execute and kill those who led to this terrible sin of idolatry. Then do you know, does anybody know exactly what happened? In the middle of all this, when all the people were crying, oh, it's terrible, we have sinned, and God's judgment is falling on us, there was one man that was stupid enough to do what? You know what he did? He went in the middle of all of this and he grabbed one of these Canaanite women and while there, everybody is crying and wailing because of the death and destruction, because of the sin, he grabs her to take her into his tent in order to have intercourse with it right while all the rest of this stuff is going on. And Phineas, 
being a good, soft-hearted evangelical, said, isn't that naughty? I wish that it weren't that way. You know, let's think about this. I wonder what God would do. You know what Phineas did, the Bible says? The Bible says that he went and got a javelin, a sword, raced right into their tent and took the spear and executed both of them as God had commanded. And do you know what the Bible says God says about Phineas? God says, naughty Phineas. You should never have done that because that's not very kind. That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says, the Bible says, may God's blessings be on you and all of your posterity and all of your seed because of your zeal for righteousness. Your zeal for righteousness. I have a question for us today looking at the bookends in Romans chapter 12. I wonder if we today have a, a zeal for righteousness. A burning for righteousness, a burning for holiness and for truth. Uh, you often can tell whether you really have a zeal for righteousness if uh, sin makes you very, very mad. Does sin make you very, very angry? Good. Because that will tell whether you have a zeal for righteousness. Finally, notice in verse 21, there is a wonderful statement of spiritual psychology with which I want to equate you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's very interesting here that Paul is giving advice about how to deal with evil as we see it in the world and in our own lives. And his, his suggestion is never to psychoanalyze it. It's not to spend so much time thinking, why did I sin? Here I sin. Let's spend a lot of time. You know what? I just had this terrible thought. Or I, had this, I committed this terrible action. Why did I do that? Let's go back and spend a year trying to investigate why I did that. No, I know why you did that. Because you're a sinner. Do you understand that we have a sinful nature? That's why we sin, even as believers. Therefore, notice what Paul says. He doesn't say psychoanalyze evil. It's remarkable. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, he's saying, spend so much time doing what is righteous and holy and good that there's no time left for evil. Isn't that amazing? You spend so much time in a passionate pursuit of righteousness. Well, man, it's just, I haven't fallen into any terrible sin. It's not because I've been just going out of my way to try to avoid and think about avoiding sin. It's been, I've been so... Busy trying to, serving God, being faithful where God has placed me in my job, being faithful at home as a mom, being faithful in the marketplace, in, in the marketplace, um, doing what I can to assist others, encouraging others by my language, spending time in prayer. I've just been doing all of these things, and guess what? I just don't have any time to do what's wrong. Now, to give some advice to some of you young men here, particularly you young unmarried men, um, there is nothing wrong with spending a lot of time working very hard and getting very tired because when you do that, you're not going to have time to, a lot of time to sin. I don't know where this business came from, probably from France, where most other wicked things come from. <laughs> the work that we don't want, it's just, it's oppressive for anybody to work more than 32 hours a week. And we're going to set a limit of 32 hours because it's just being so oppressive on people. If you're here, particularly, and older too, but particularly if you're a young man, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you working 60 or 70 hours a week and work really hard. And work hard in the service of the Lord, which means where God has called you to work, 
not just in piously reading your Bible and praying, though that's extremely valuable and necessary, where God has called you to work. Work zealously, work diligently, and it's amazing. You just work so hard, and guess what? There's just not a lot of time for you to fall into terrible sin. That's a good thing. You know what that is? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, which is to say be righteousness-obsessed. Be obsessed with righteousness. Um, Because of the Lord Jesus Christ who bought us with his own blood, the Bible says in Peter that we are born anew by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved because of what he has done for us on the cross. Because of what he has done for us, taking us out of a miry pit and setting us in, in, in strong and firm places, we are called by the power of the Spirit to be righteousness obsessed people. Notice I didn't say merely righteous people. We're called to be righteousness-obsessed people. Do you, do I, have an obsession with righteousness, an obsession with holiness? That is a good thing, and that is what God honors. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for... uh, the truth in uh, Romans chapter 12. Today, Lord, I only addressed two main verses here. There's so much else. Lord, help us to have a horror for what is evil. Help us to cleave to that which is good as glue causes two items to cleave to one another, to hold to one another so that they cannot be separated. Father, uh, help us not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Help us to be so righteousness-obsessed that we don't have time to commit sin. That is something that, though we can never be sinlessly perfect, O God, it's something that doesn't occupy our minds and lives. It never dominates us, O God, because uh, we are so zealous for righteousness. Give us, O God, starting with me and with our elders and with our deacons, a great zeal for righteousness. Do it, Father, for our young people, our young uh, unmarried, uh, young single people in this congregation. And do it for our children, O God. Show them the necessity of a zeal for righteousness. Take up some of these 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, like Samuel of old, give them a remarkable zeal for righteousness. Do this, Father, please, for the sake of your son Jesus, whom we love and who is our Lord and who is our King. Amen.